0: Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Boddy. This is episode 44, Denny Palmer-Wolf, Oxygen in the Bloodstream, Act 1, recorded March 5th, 2021.
1: Let's start it started up now.
2: Hey, hey, TA Podians. Welcome to Teaching Our History Podcast. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Muncie Lenape peoples in what is currently called Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for listening and thanks for being a part of our global community. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or any podcast player, including Spotify. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And check out the newly designed teachingartistry.org website. It's got a new look. It's even more user-friendly. And it's your one-stop shop for episodes, guest bios, our video series, and the newly designed e zines for a deeper dive into episodes. And of course, the Teaching RSU Pod Shop for merch. <laughs> All right. So this, uh, I think it was in February, might've started in March, I've been working with an executive coach with a focus on EDI. And um, you'll actually hear, uh, hear from him uh, in an upcoming interview. But uh, Kemi, is his name, Kemi Josephs, shared with me in one of our sessions a way to think about how to be more intentional about how I move in a given day or week. Um, we all have to-do lists, Yeah. And um, he asked me at some point this spring, what is your to-be list? Um, and for me, my to-be list has definitely evolved. I think it took a little while for me to really understand what this, this question uh, was asking for. But I'm in this place where my to-be list is to be in a more promising frame of mind to caretake for others. And very importantly, for myself to be open and ready to lean into doing things um, that fill my own well so that I can support my colleagues, my friends, my family, Um, being kind to myself and doing my best to listen to what I need in order to feel connected and be centered. Um, So all that to say that, from a physical perspective, a mental perspective, um, it's really it's really a great question. So I'm, um, for example, how am I accomplishing that? So that's my sort of, that's my goal. And then you can, if you're into like organizational planning, you can think about what are the strategies to reach that goal slash how are the, ta- what are the tactics? So my strategy is to listen to what my body needs and to make time for myself. My tactics are, especially in the summer are to soak up as much of the sun as I possibly can. Um, I am swimming in the uh, New York city outdoor pools doing my laps. Um, I'm also lounging, like literally falling asleep in the sun, which is for me the most fun and funny thing. I don't know why, but I think it's really funny Um, reading and just uh, like allowing myself to, like truly let the shoulders down from away from the years, um, so I offer that to you by way of you know from me from Kemi to you, to, you know. So I say the chain from Kemi to me to now to you. What is your to be list? Okay, so this is a very special episode. One. That for me has been years in the making. Many of them are, but I'm really excited about our guest, Denny Palmer Wolf. This is the third and final interview in the, our three part series featuring award recipients of our partner, Association of Teaching Artists, which is now Teaching Artists Guild. Denny received the 2020 Teaching Artists Ally Award for her deep support of and advocacy for teaching artists over the years. Denny is a principal at Wolf Brown an arts and culture consulting firm working nationally and internationally to promote quality, diversity, and innovation in the creative sector. Um, so Denny and I have a, a, a very good professional working relationship and I find her to be such an interesting human being, constantly curious about how her mind works and how she sees things in ways that I just like... I don't, I don't understand. I I haven't seen it in that way. So being around her is really, really helpful for me to see different perspectives on the work that we, the kind of work that we do. So, um, mostly up until now, our, our interactions are of a professional nature, but this particular time, it was a Friday night and we were able to, um, you know, let the hair, let the hair down as it were and get into, um, You know, we were able to get uh, let our hair down and just relax a little bit and get underneath a lot of the things to reveal some really exciting aspects of her life and things that I didn't know. So in this episode, we discuss a, a very wide range of topics, learning about her schooling, her artistry, how she entered into the field of research. Um, as well as her focus on making more equitable change within the arts and culture sector and turning that critical eye on research and standards that are often defined by white presenting people. Here is episode 44, act one, Denny Palmer-Wolf, oxygen in the bloodstream. Hi, Denny. Hey. (laughs) Hey. Hey how's it going it's good i get to talk to you i'm um first of all i'm loving your your look
3: right now um as i say i got all dressed up for (laughs) my date with courtney yeah
2: it's a hot hot friday night date um welcome to teaching our history podcast
3: thank you for having me
2: oh i Thank you for accepting my invitation. Um, no, no, seriously, you have been on my, um, my guest list, my, my want guest list for a very, very long time. And so I think timing is, is like kind of everything. Um, anyway, so this podcast, uh, celebrates artists. I know you do that. Um, it celebrates culture and it is examining and celebrating equity. Um, And so, yeah, I'm excited to learn about your journey. Um, I want to talk a lot about your work in the field of arts and arts education. I want to... You're a researcher. And I don't I am... I'm not a researcher. (laughs) So I really want to learn more about your your work and your process. And then... um, Yeah, I'm setting us up. I'm setting us up. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about, yeah, equity, anti-racism, liberatory practices with you from your perspective and how we can continue to grow um, and get better in this field. Cool? Great. Great. Um, So let's start with you. Uh, Yes, you are having a hot, hot (laughs) <laughs> Friday night date but <laughs> how are you how have you been how are you doing how are your loved ones in this time we are we are approaching a year a year
3: that is right um, I'm lucky uh, we're well I'm between my two vaccine shots um, the people near and dear to me are well Um, so, you know, we are, we are blessed in that way, in a way that, you know, not everybody has been or is, um, I, I, you know, I have grandkids and kids and stuff. So watching them in this time, you really, um, you know, there's the dark part of it, um, but, you know, they're funny, light parts. I mean, so with my boys, we read every night over Zoom. Uh, read aloud, you know, gather around the Zoom screen. Uh, but that's been great because I see them almost every day. Um, and, you know, we read together. Uh and they choose the books um, and uh i you know i I get to see their brains at work, mm. their imaginations at work, so you know crazy time, hard time, absolutely, but it has had some remarkable parts like like that in it, and i you know I am ferociously bored i mean, I miss people I miss doing things, I miss being in schools you know that's yeah. that's hard, but you know that
2: i d- I do know that i think it's interesting first of all your language is is always amazing to me um ferociously bored. what an image. <laughs> i I wish I could be for- there are moments where I wish I could be ferociously bored. I'm working what feels like twenty four hours a day um,
3: Oh, yeah, I work more hours a day than I probably ever have, but so much of it is it doesn't have the the punch of an actual encounter or so it's like it just lasts it doesn't arc and crescendo
2: ebbs and the flows are, are like much large, larger and longer. I, I think. And, and the, the ebbs are harsh. I find, um, I just wanted to just dig a, dig a second for, um, something that you said that, um, about your grandchildren. So they are not based in your area.
3: Well, right now I'm, in Maine. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, uh, three of them were here mm-hmm. um, at the height of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But they are now, everybody is now back in New York City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have two girls, three boys. And
2: is that kids or grandkids? No,
3: no, no, no. I have a son and a daughter and then they have. They have. But in truth, I have. I mean, the parents. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but
2: I remember you talking about, I, about the grandkids coming to the theater. So I, I.
3: Oh, so they live in New York. Yeah. But at the height of the pandemic, they were living here.
2: I guess what I'm trying to do is get a picture of, of what life was like pre-pandemic because what you just, just oh. described was so touching and lovely. And I I very, again, not knowing a lot about your life, I always felt like when I'm hearing about the grandkids having seen something at the New Victory, yeah. like that was always so exciting and delightful to hear from you. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm just curious about the de- uh, So
3: pre-pandemic... Mm-hmm. Um, one of the families lives in Brooklyn, and the three boys who are the ones who live in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and I would f- frequently come to the New Vic. Mm-hmm. I gave yeah. me, you know, particularly as they got sort of into elementary school, you know, you have to search for street cred, right? Word. Huh?
2: yeah definitely
3: <laughs> the fact that I could produce an outing to the new Vic was so super duper around the street cred issue that you know you you guys will, will forever go down in my grateful book yes
2: that's awesome that's really awesome I wish I had a new victory when I was a kid I would have Wanted to ask to go there all day every day. I think yeah. I think I would have. Yeah, I remember just as a side note, like my my parents used to take us to see shows, uh, broad off Broadway, Broadway shows. None of it was made for us. I didn't understand anything ever, but I loved it. You know, um and uh when I started working at the New Victory, my dad was retired, but he would come in t- and he had a house in Pennsylvania. And he would. Come into Port Authority on his way to Long Island and he would stop by. And especially like he came to see, I remember him, he came to see a couple of different shows and he was just Im- so impressed by everything and so awed by everything. And you know, at the time I was sort of like, oh, dad, come on. <laughs> but at the same time, I was like, I feel the same. Like I walked in anytime I walk into that theater, I'm often like, oh my God, this place is awesome. <laughs> um, and so I can I understand the street street cred because I definitely got street cred working at the New Vic from somebody who's like a lifelong educator and love lover of theater. Um, so it goes both ways is what I'm saying, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, Do you do you would you consider yourself an artist?
3: Well, there was a time uh, when I was a painter. Yeah, so high school going into college, I imagined that I would be, you know, what, the great American female figurative painter. Yes. Um, but you know what? I started on that, and my life drawing classes and things were mostly with boys i mean young men mm-hmm. and mostly with male professors mm-hmm. and they were wicked
2: oh i'm sure uh, where where did you go
3: to school well i was at the art institute in san francisco then um and i lost courage it was a i got beaten down um and I think about it now, and I think, you know, I wish there had been somebody who said, "You cannot back down, you just can't back down they're you know they're jerks, so just go on and paint um but I lost courage, bad idea um so I'm not a painter, I wish I were um, but I'm not. Do you do it recreationally at all? No. I mean, for me, to paint recreationally is the worst because you start – I mean, you get the fever again. Mm. And, you know, there's not the same kind of time. You don't have your chops back. So I just feel like, you know, the worst thing that happened is – My mom kept all my paintings from that time. And it was bad enough that she had them and they were on her walls because they used to make my heart sink every time I saw them. Mm -hmm. Um, In part because I missed it in part because they were bad paintings. (laughs) Um, But then she gave them to my son so I had always waited for the day when she would move to a small apartment and they would have to end up in the trash heap and I would be relieved of them. And then she turned around and gave them to Lex, my son. So they are still, and you know, they, a huge one hangs in the foyer of his apartment. So I have to, you know, when in back in the days when I could go there encounter this former self and I have tried to get him to burn it, lose it whatever (laughs) and I have not been successful
2: I as As an outside outside observer observer, and not really observing just listening to you I would venture to say that she was very proud of you and proud of the work that you you created which is why she kept it and shared it. it Same with your son is my imagination. Um, I'm wondering if there's a way. I'm wondering because I I am in a place where I'm trying to not do that regret moment, like to look back at things. Uh, I'll give you a prime example. Sorry, that my my mom um, my mom wanted to be an architect, actually. And uh, she Uh, she was told this is not not a job, this is not not a a career career choice choice for a woman in the time that she was trying to pursue it or or mentioned it. I don't even know exactly exactly when it was, was, but but I would say say she was a young young, woman, you know, maybe high school school or or potentially college. college. And... She would talk about about how she wished that she she hadn't listened to whoever said that to her and just pursued it anyway. And it wasn't until after after she had her kids that that she realized, you know, really what she wanted wanted to do. And she, at, you know, 40-something in the middle of the 80s, pursued her master's degree in library science and then entered, after a very long time of being out of the workforce, entered the workforce, um, you know, close to 50 and um that was a a big that was a a big big deal deal for her right but what what she what she would identify at least in the conversations conversations that i would have with her her, is the things things that she she regretted as opposed to the amazing strides and things that she she did did, right and i i i too have done those i've had those moments or i you know you have a way of telling a story that you've just told time and time again and you tell it from this very specific POV perspective and And I'm trying trying to to pause pause that that and and like reframe reframe certain things and reframe certain certain ways that I not that I'm trying trying to change change the memory memory, but but I'm I'm trying trying to change change the way I I view the memory
3: yeah so something interesting happened last week um so my second granddaughter is um very interested in painting and drawing and my son, who fights with me about why I don't paint anymore all the time, you know, bombards me with photographs and and uh, of um, all of Lila's paintings and drawings and stuff. Um, and he sent me last week her um, oh, the comments from her report card from her art teacher. Mm that said, you know, she has a, a terrific imagination and all these kinds of things. He said, you know, you always paint her as a scientist, as a practical person. You know, she has this other wonderful side. You know, you should take those comments and print them on a T-shirt and she should, you know, wear it to bed every night. And Anyway, so the other day, I open up my mail and there's a t-shirt for me with the comments from the art teacher printed on the back and a Lila drawing on the front. So, um, you know, what comes around goes around. So we'll see. I
2: love that. Um, And that feels very much like a son of yours.
3: (laughs) He's fabulous that way. Fabulous.
2: That's awesome. Um so I want to I want to give you a little a little a little praise. Um part 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 of the reason why you're a guest on the podcast is because you got an award last year from Association of Teaching Artists. Right. Um the Teaching Artist Ally Award. Yeah. Um for your work. So I realize that we haven't talked about your work or your like What's your role? what do you do? What
3: do I do? What do I do? I had to fill out a form the other day, and you know you have to choose from the drop down menu. um so when I choose from the drop down menu, I would say, researcher. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking like I don't like this drop down menu what do I wish were on it? Yeah. Um I was thinking, you know. I wish there were independent scholar-writer or something there, um, which feels much more like what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, technically, yes, I do research. Um, You know, we've worked together on the research, on the impact of theater going with kids over time at the New Vic. Um, so yeah, it's, I would say research, um, my particular brand of it is, um, what people call qualitative research. So interviews, observations, samples of student work, trying to get at the meaning of experiences for people and the way in which those experiences change or don't change mm-hmm. their their lives. So as you know, um, I worked very closely with a colleague, Stephen Holocaust, mm-hmm. who is a quantitative researcher of the first water. So a real research design maven and measurement maven And so together, we have a conversation um, with Stephen holding up the sort of architecture measurement and and my holding up the, yes, but what does it mean? Or, yes, but why does it matter? Or those, those kinds of things. So I guess the other thing to say is I'm, you know, in that sense, I'm half a researcher. Because together, Stephen and I have a research conversation. Um, and, you know, it wouldn't be anywhere near as deep or as thoughtful if I if I didn't have that partnership.
2: I was thinking that it's like um, co-investigators with different lenses that make a whole.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a very nice way of putting it
2: yeah i mean we're we're so yeah let's take that step back that um we've known each other since 2012 2012 i know um i think i knew of you prior to that but i didn't get to meet you until 2012 2012 um and that was when uh the new victory was on a on a quest i would say to um find a research partner uh to help us do some real digging into the work that we do um new victory has quite a a lovely reputation for its work and i'm very proud to be a part of it but i think we were at a place where um well one myself and my colleague Lindsay, who you work most closely with uh at the new vic um Uh, just became directors and it was the first time there were two directors. It was the first time that um, there were these two sort of segments of a whole same thing, you know, co-investigators, co-conspirators, right. Um, And we were both interested in, in similar conversations, but I being much more of a programmer and designing programs that, you know, you, uh, that, a researcher might you know do some sort of research inside of i wasn't building a program to be researched and uh that wasn't the goal initially but then it was like oh based off of the the line of inquiry that we are in we really want to do something that has a deeper impact than we currently are are doing um uh, on a large scale and that that could provide some re- some real uh ground and space for a deeper dive and research specifically. So we can talk about that a little bit more, but I, I just think that one of the things that I remember, one of our very first meetings is as sort of you coming in with this, you know, amazing flowy something or other. <laughs> And these amazing glasses, and just looking so stylish. And I was like, who is this woman? And then you would like say a something. I can't remember anything that you said ever, but like you just said something. And I just thought, wow, this woman is so smart and so knowledgeable and so connected. And like, con- when I say connected, I mean like connected into what this youth development you know, world is all about and and thinking about young people and their, their growth. And that was very exciting and frankly daunting. (laughs) Um, And then, and then we were also excited about the counting new beans uh, book that had come out about the impact research uh, that your, your other research partner, um, Alan Brown, yeah, had done. And so there was just this very exciting new, uh horizon that we never expected to be at and we certainly could not have known how long and how deep this relationship would go (laughs) at the time but boy are we so much better for it so much better for it
3: yeah and i you know uh this the sort of internal saying is there you know there are no good researchers they're only good research projects and that means also in part the you know, the people you partner with. Um, you know, so that was really a project about what did the what are the long-term impacts on young people of really being asked to become theater goers. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean in a young person's life to come downtown to the New Vic to be in conversations with performers and also to have, uh, you know, remarkably trained teaching artists in their classrooms, um, and you know it—it's a very special project I think for both Stephen and me because it exactly as you say went on for a number of years so we had those kids for three years i mean i can go in there in the database and see you know kid 404 as a third grader a fourth grader a fifth grader um so in all of those ways it was and it you know it remains a very special um research project and also because the new Vic was willing to invest in a team of teaching artists to be Mm co-researchers. And um, what that meant is that, you know, we could go in and observe classes and interview kids and ask them to do an annual survey. But we had teaching artists with us who taught us to be much better interviewers and much better observers. Mm. So, um, you know, one of the tasks we were using to try and get at what kids were learning about other people through theater was to ask them to watch this crazy little black and white film and to be the narrator for it, which meant, you know, inferring a lot about what was happening to the character. And we were having some troubles in the beginning because kids were uncomfortable. They didn't want to, you know, pretend to be the radio show host, narrate. Anyway, and teaching artists really taught us how to warm kids up, how to get them sort of into a theater mode where narrating and pantomiming was not uncomfortable. So, you know, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say the research project was not only long, but it was so mutual Mm -hmm. that I think we walked away with at least you know, at least as much uh change in in our outlook and our skill set as any as any of the kids or any of the teaching artists,
2: yeah, I mean, just to go back to that award, thinking about the fact that Association of Teaching Artists, which I, I've been the president of, I'm I'm very, you know, engaged with that group or have been and um for them to to call you a, a teaching artist ally, somebody who's not an, actually a teaching artist, but has done a tremendous amount of work with uh, teaching artists researching their work. And then more specifically in, in projects like this, where teaching artists themselves are trained as researchers, that mutual um, learning uh, partnership um, and, and all for in the service of learning how we can do our work better. Um, in this time, we know that, uh, you know, we're, I said it earlier that we are approaching the one year mark. This is being uh, recorded on March 5th and, um, you know, right, right away teaching artists at this time a year ago, teaching artists were losing work and then artists, and then, you know, it sort of spiled out from there. And at this point in time, a year later, many teaching artists, I don't know the exact statistic, I know there is one, maybe 86%, I think, have lost a significant amount of their income sources. And Wolf Brown, you at the helm, uh, within other kinds of partnerships, have done a lot of work around talking about how important artists are, have been you know right away within a month of this within you know 2 months of this and even now today a, a year later do you do you want to talk a little bit about that work
3: yeah i mean i think one of the striking things early in the pandemic was and you as a new yorker will know this how quickly many institutions um Particularly large and well-healed ones um, move to let go the portions of their staff which are actually closest to the public, mm-hmm. the sort of public-facing staff members, whether they're you know docents in museums or teaching artists. <clears throat> and so I was struck immediately by you know, in some ways, the cruelty of the closer to the floor, meaning the closer to ordinary people, also closest to the door. I mean, you know, and the fact that institutions that have endowments, that have ways of persisting in hard times, should move so immediately to let go of people who, you know, may have worked there six months, but may have worked there six years or 16 years, who know the institution, who are the public voice of the institution, who carry the institution, you know, into Staten Island, into Queens, and uh, and then... Um. And so it seemed really important to speak out um, about that and to call, in a way, to call institutions to account Mm -hmm. for making those choices. Why do you keep executive-level salaries that they are and, you know, furlough or cut off teaching artists? Um, And to really raise the question, wait, 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 wait. Aren't there ways... That you could do this differently. Um, aren't aren't there ways in which teaching artists could take on other jobs or could do additional work, or you could actually be paying them to make the to learn to make the digital content that will keep uh, residencies going in schools. Why aren't you making that investment? which is actually an investment in a long-term future, mm. rather than the almost instant investment to furlough or to let go entirely. Um, so that's where the, ori- uh, the original round of writing came from. Mm-hmm. The second round of writing came from, you know, okay, if if... Teaching artists are currently um, that vulnerable. Mm-hmm. What has to happen in the field that would make them less vulnerable? So, really trying to raise the questions about what should hiring practices look like at institutions. Mm-hmm. I mean. You know, the Nuvik I have always admired because you really build a core of teaching artists and seek to give them enough hours that they can make, they have time for their art and have the possibility of a of a living wage or the opposed to what happens for many, many teaching artists, which, you know, they end up... With, working for you know five institutions in order to and spending most of their life on the seven train um you know so but then also a a sort of third round of work which is to say to teaching artists all right if if you want those hours and you want to not only be a teaching artist but Hard to digital content, or you want to be a teaching artist, and you want to be a co-researcher in the evaluations the institution does. What skills are you willing to take on, so that you are, in fact, bilingual um, and can can survive? So
2: I want to I want to dig into that, but I want to just mark. A couple of things. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think part, I don't know how to say this in a way that's not, <laughs> so I'm just gonna say it like the, ins- those larger institutions that you're talking about that, you know, just made swift cuts and weren't, uh, intentional or thoughtful or thinking about the term, Um, they, they were trying to save their own asses and instead they showed their asses, you know what I'm saying? Like it, they show, they showed themselves out to say like, this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean anything. It is not important to give it the time to try and figure out how we can make those kinds of beautiful choices that you're talking about or, or decisions around how do we think about this in cycles potentially? Like if there needs to be furloughs, what does, what can that look like? That is about being as, as humane as possible to our workforce But, and thinking about our business practices and what is going to be needed and useful across, you know, a longer period of time because we don't know what's going on. And I, what I appreciated, frankly, is that having my, my co-pilot, we talked a lot. We were, we were given, you know, sort of, well, we need you to cut back our, your budgets by X amount. And it was like, okay, well, what can we, what can we cut that's not about payroll? What, you know, what don't we need? We don't need catering. We don't need these other things that are direct expenses in our budgets anymore. Okay, that's fine, but we need to keep this. And we were asked questions. I mean, and they were, they were legitimate questions. Yeah, sure. There was, but we were asked questions like, could they, could there be, um, you know, different pay rates and whatnot. And it was like, I understand the reason for that question, but the answer is no, <laughs> because, <laughs> because you know yes they're not commuting yes they're not doing that but they're they're having to do that other st- like they're having to put that time and energy into the preparation into making sure that they have the proper tools to do this work into thinking differently and trying finding and trying to figure out how they translate what they would do magically and i don't mean that like you know i don't actually mean magic but that to to do the the work that they put in doesn't change and in fact it actually is more and in fact that's what we should be thinking about is how do we reallocate so that we can be paying folks properly for the work that they're doing and still you know meet a, a bottom line that is necessary because we're losing income right so you know so what what i'm what i feel very blessed around is that um you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm saying anything out of turn really, but like between me and Lindsay, the bulk of the teaching arts payroll is under my portfolio and what she did very, very quickly and, and somewhat altruistically I would say is that when we were looking at our budgets, trying to do our best to protect that, that those funds, and and frankly, repurpose those funds. So instead of doing workshops in a, in a classroom, they were making videos, and we were doing what we could to support them to do that. She was then looking at other areas, as as was I, but um, to see what we could cut to to reach that bottom line that um, would not be about payroll, <laughs> and that was across all of our our all of our jobs. But but that doesn't mean that there weren't sacrifices and there weren't something like a furlough that did ha it definitely happened and the PPP loan helped and we did and we were able to bring folks back in and they were able to help us in that time frame um one like accomplish a whole bunch of things within the same fiscal year but also help us think differently about the next one and where we ended up going and how we ended up where we are now right so we so the idea of the ROI was not even a, you know, and we made pitches, we made many pitches and then we got more than we we were anticipating, which is amazing, but it was also really hard, <laughs> like in terms of the back end. But what was great was that we were able to, um, in that sort of interim period, we were able to be engaging with those who were making these videos and, and having those supports in there. We were still having enough funds to be able to have some meetings. Uh, it wasn't enough, by any means but we also were doing our best to 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 keep them informed so we tried to be as transparent as we possibly could and now they come you know there's other things yeah they come to our full staff meetings in a way that they didn't before um mainly you know it just wasn't a thing before because you know the entire company would be in the lower lobby and where would everybody go unless we were in the theater and that's a whole other ball of wax. anyway the so i think that what what's interesting about what you're, you're talking about in terms of those larger decision-making, like, you know, who's, who's listening. Cause I know, I know for a fact that education directors were doing their damnedest to, to be able to protect and they um, weren't necessarily able to, to, to do all the protecting that they wanted to do. We were, we were, I think, you know, we were in a position that, they were listening to us and instead of saying, you have to do this, it was more about like, how can you make this work? That's right. And they trusted right. us to figure that out. Yeah.
3: So what's the institutional culture? <sighs> yes. Yes. That says we need to have a discussion about this. And, you know, we need to learn from or have representatives from the you know, the people who are most directly involved and affected. No, I mean, I I just think institutions were very different Mm -hmm. about how in that moment, late March, early April, Mm -hmm. how differently they behaved. Um, And nobody was without, as you point out, I mean, everybody had to make cuts. Everybody had to make sacrifices. But the difference between sort of a kitchen table discussion about how do we... Make ends meet, and uh decision which is thirty percent of you go mm-hmm. is, those are two very different kinds of decisions mm-hmm.
2: um, i I think I want to go back to the point that you made initially about those who are closest to the to the participants of your programming yeah. and how those are the first to to go mm-hmm. i mean in a in a if you zoom out for a second, those are your essential workers, mm-hmm. right and how poorly as a country we treat essential workers who, you know, if I, if I put that spotlight on it for a second, that in some places essential workers, like not, not the medical field necessarily, but um, people who are delivery folks or people who are working in grocery stores, which were uh, deemed essential unless they have some other other filter they are still not part of the vaccination process or the the initial rollout at least. And um, what's up with that, right? And so it's the same. It's the same concept at least. I I don't know if I would equate it exactly, but the concept I think is the same. And then and then yeah, we're we're also um, very acutely in a in a moment of reckoning around racial justice and cultural equity and rooting uh rooting into understanding and and truly acknowledging and no longer being able to like sort of skirt around the fact that these these institutions and more in this field and 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 large are rooted in white supremacy and so we're going there faster than i thought we were but we're here so let's go with it (laughs) um because and I, I think you know, like I, wa- there's so many, there's it's so interconnected in so many ways, right? Like, I had this moment. Okay, this is this is a little much, and I don't know if we need to go down this line of thinking. But I'm in the middle of creating content for Juneteenth, so this <laughs> my brain is is in the midst of like the idea of those who who enslaved folks, um, and thinking of the fiefdoms of a plantation and how arts institutions are, are structured very similarly that the, you know, the, the person who owned such a plantation weren't not necessarily the ones in the field. Right. And they certainly were not, you know, uh, like the foreman's or the, uh, those who were like perpetrating a lot of the, um, the, a lot of the violence though, it was all a, a violent, um, scenario and an experience but but the, anyway so i my brain sort of started to go through that and like how far away is is a president or is an, an executive director or a board and how much are they thinking about the ec- the economics of it all and how you maintain that status as opposed to thinking you know it's the trick it's the trickle down economics lie you know as opposed to thinking about you know the those who are closest to the participants, those are who are thinking deeply more deeply than many of the people up here are about those participants and their human experiences, how inhumanely we can be treating those same people right. um and i so i i I'm inviting myself, who is definitely you know. I, in this in this time frame has like entered into that sphere. What the, what? <laughs> but also, how do I change that? How do I bring, flatten this, because it's not okay. And I and I and I am a black woman uh, who is is you know has been raised in this society and definitely perpetrates lots of lots of um uh, uh, constructs and and actions that are, are rooted in this, in this, you know, delusional culture. And I don't even know it sometimes because I'm moving too fast or I'm doing this and I'm hurting people in the process and not wanting to not intentionally doing it, but nonetheless, the impact is there. Right. So I don't know if I have a question anymore, (laughs) but now I'm just in this, like, okay, I'm thinking about like, you know, I started this podcast because I wanted something to be. I wanted there to be something that felt like a place of understanding and support for this beautiful community. And in this year, I've you know I feel like I've done everything that I have have been able to do. You know, as as a person and and in partnership with others. You know, institutionally in my full time job, through this podcast, through you know, but it's still there's still so much further to go. So my, I think where my question is going is one, you know, let's, let's talk about some of the, the, um, what would you call them? Pieces, articles, op-eds that you wrote? Oh, yeah. Uh, what would you call them? Op-eds. Op-eds. Let's, Let's talk about like what, 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 what can you tell us about them? I and mean, we're going to point people to go read them specifically, but is there one that you'd like to highlight specifically, like where you can give us an example of where it was, where something was egregious or something that was actually quite positive positive, oh, and, or the questions that you're asking, like, how do we make change because it's now
3: or, or it's now. It's make- now. Yeah. It's now. now yeah um yeah there were two parts in the in the op eds one was um, really uh, directly about teaching artists and about honoring the work they do, particularly in stressful times um, and you no know, I, I think people don't think through all that they do. So, I mean, if you think about a city like New York, Mm -hmm. uh, persistently, stubbornly segregated city, Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, teaching artists, the extent that institutions are responsible and hire. A diverse range of teaching artists. Teaching artists are some of the most powerful role models Mm. that Black and Brown kids will have Mm. in the context of their school, of people who are at the top of the game, who are stars, who are in charge of their destiny, who are agents on their own behalf. Mm -hmm. And, you know, That's, you know, that's like oxygen racing in the blood system of the schools. And to undercut that is, you know, cut your nose off to spite your face. Mm. The other thing is that, um, I think there was a tendency, particularly early in the pandemic to think about it as an adult problem. That is, what are, what what are museums, what are theaters, what are dance companies going to do, and not to think about it also in terms of, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, a pandemic, a, a a terrible thing for young people as well. I mean, because they're, you know, they're they're cut off from these kinds of people, but also, you know, in the pandemic, you know, field trips are over. Um, The surprise visit of your teaching artist or residency is over. Um, You know, life narrows and shuts down. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of creative youth development organizations shuttered. Um, so you know when we think about what to save and what to fund and what to make sure continues on mm. it seems to me like the emphasis has been largely on adults serving um arts and culture functions and much less on youth serving um functions of arts and culture and that's like to say like we don't care what happens to a next generation, um, that won't have access to these things. So I think, you know, part of one of the op-eds was really about teaching artists as cultural workers, deserving a living wage, deserving job security, deserving job training. I mean, we wouldn't think, you know, it's this myth that they're doing what they want to do. So if they suffer, you know, that's a choice they made. Yeah, and it's, that's, also, it's not true.
2: It's just not true. And it's also um, a guest who's been on here who I I adore, and also has just yelled at me recently with love. Um, uh, says, you know, that they think that there's no skill involved and that they just wake up on a Wednesday. This is this is her, her words not mine, but um, that I think that's part of it is that it, like so much of their work, the work that they do in a product-based world it can be invisible, right? And so that invisible piece gets unpaid or underpaid, yeah. underappreciated, under-resourced not resourced right um so i i you know prior to the pre-pandemic this field while yes it was it was growing in its professionalism it, it really had uh, um that same thing that you're talking about the agency i like to call them imagineers but like the agency that artists have in their own destiny it was still dependent on something that was out of their hands sometimes Often. Yeah. Often. And, and even with the new victory, yes, we, we wanted to create space for those who who, um, we, we, we hire artists who are doing work and would go on tour or, you know, would be working or going to grad school and then coming. And those experiences out in the, in the world would feed right back into supporting and contributing to the, the growth and the development of our programs. and we would pay them every time they you know they walked in the door uh, that was always the goal. and and ultimately our goal was was and should be, and we need to reevaluate it, I believe, was to be um, up to like at the bottom up to the a fourth of their income, whatever their income was, right? because it would be based off of their availability, essentially, but that we would have enough work. To offer where the average was at, at, you know, a livable wage, which at the time I think was like $86,000. And that was not just, that was like arts, media, and sports writ large. And then, um, you know, depending on people's time and availability, some would be making above that, some would be making it below that, but that would be in accordance to their destiny, right? To their availability and what they were wanting to do or could, could do, depending Um, and I used to think that that was amazing and I don't anymore because, you know, yeah. And, and then, and then on the, on the flip of that, right, you talked about how artists can be, you know, like such a, such a great, uh, would you say the oxygen in the bloodstream of a school? Yes. Love that image. But who are those artists who are walking into those spaces? You know, like there's a whole conversation to be had about, um, the models of, um, you know, black indigenous and, and, and people of color who are well employed within this, this field and not underemployed in this field, which is and has been the case in many for many, many years and for, for a variety of reasons, for exactly the, the reasons like who's got, who's got the ability to be, you know, schlepping around on all, uh, all sorts of, you know, media, uh, MTA for, you know, a a very small, meager, you know, $30, $50 an hour. It's usually going to be somebody who might be married to somebody who's making more money in a different industry or it's somebody who's gonna, you know, try and find a full time job. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it's not gonna be somebody who's who's necessarily writ large. I'm really saying this writ large of color. They do work. They do. I'm not saying that there isn't any. I'm simply saying that the the ability to make a choice, if there is a choice like that, like it, it could be a calling to make a choice to be in a in a in an industry, a nonprofit industry that undervalues your brilliance and genius you know what i'm saying <laughs> like why why would i go there when i don't i'm not appreciated there and you're underpaying me and you you know there's an intellectual property issue there's all sorts of things that are of concern and and definitely need
3: to be addressed I don't have yeah, a... I have great hopes for the movement, which I think of as the movement for for teaching arts to really identify as cultural workers, um, as in in the sense of you know wages, benefits, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things, and I think you know I think the effort on the part of people to unionize in museums and and those kinds of things is, is important and holds, holds promise. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also think, you know, we have to redefine, a teaching artists role so that it has many skills that come under it. So that, you know, so that institutions can and will pay, a living wage for teaching artists. You know, you could whether it's doing the digital content, whether it's doing the research, whether it's working in development and marketing. Mm-hmm. But so you you know, you do have 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 those kind of skills. But I you know I I think yeah I think there are there are just they're very, very important and and large questions about the all all over the field about about um equity and i you know it's not it's not just teaching artists i mean yeah. in you know in my own field as a researcher mm-hmm. it's rotten um We, there are not, at present, the numbers of BIPOC researchers that there should be in this field. Mm -hmm. Um, It's mostly dominated by people who look like me, who are trained in a certain way. Um, And... You know, unless and until that changes, we have a real problem. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, so, for instance, the field has been, as they say, long dominated by people who look like me Mm -hmm. and people who felt comfortable that the stock we would take or the research that we would do was about whether um arts participation may raise test scores may change kids cognitive abilities um when and and questions about representation or identity or a sense of belonging For which you need the insight, the sensitivity of people who have been marginalized to be there as as researchers, never got, never really got asked in the same sort of mainline way. Or what I see going on now, which is in some ways great that is this notion that the arts could help us to build the social and emotional skills Mm -hmm. that every human being needs, in school, out of school, in relationships, out of relationships. Mm -hmm. But those social emotional skills are in danger of getting to defined, again, by people who look like me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they are, they could come out. I think the the race is still open, but if you look at a lot of the scales, including some of the ones we used in the SPARK research, Mm -hmm. social emotional skills have to do with Getting along with other people, um, meeting deadlines, modulating your anger, mm-hmm. um, being able to say you're sorry, not getting angry—you know—they are about being well-behaved according to a certain set of norms, and not speaking out, being loud, raising questions, defending your friend who was accused of something she didn't do. Mm-hmm. Those social emotional skills, which are about a a critical and an impassioned view about fairness and equity and things, are being defined out of social emotional skills, mm. and unless and until we have a more a um, more diverse community of researchers and people who hold researchers' feet to the fire mm. about those kinds of issues, I mean we're gonna define social emotional skills so that they're the equivalent of table manners
2: yeah i mean everything that you named um what was the first thing that you said uh in terms of the social emotional uh being able to modulate your anger anger, um being able to apologize um tone yeah. I mean all all of these fall under I uh, like classic tech you know definitions of of white supremacist constructs and you know if you if you take it one step further if the research field looks like You or you know, mostly looks like you or is dominated by folks like you that look like you, excuse me. Um, you know, 80% of the teaching, the public school teacher population also is of the same ilk. And what, what are, what is a, what is a, what is classroom management? What is behavior management about? You know, being quiet. And, and focused as opposed to being tailored towards the way that a young person learns that is not necessarily about quiet. That is not necessarily about, you know, but that criticality, those skill sets that you, the second set of sets that you, skill sets that you talked about, the critical lenses, the ability to make an argument, to be persuasive, the ability to um, step in and not be a bystander, right? Those, those things are, frankly a lot you know to to bring it back to arts like you can learn a lot of those skill sets when you are engaging in the arts in different capacities um but you're right polite society is not what we need anymore that has gotten us where we are right now that and like being too focused on individuation and not community is also why we have you know, over 500,000 people who've passed away from this disease in this country and the last administration and previous administrations, right? I mean, it's, this is a, this is a large, so I, you know, I'm trying to bring it back to how do we make change in this field? We have to be looking at this globally in front from that same critical lens to like, if we want to, if we want to shift the conversation or the view on teaching artists or participatory artists, um, community artists, uh, whatever the title currently is to cultural workers, what what is a cultural worker? And if it's about making sure that there's benefits and, you know, livable wages, does that mean? within the, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex, which is rooted in, um, you know, the saviorism, but only, you know, with a, with a, what do you call it? With a, with a stipulation, like with a, what's the hook? What's the hook, right? You know, like, yeah, you don't get something for nothing, right? Um, How do, how do you change, you have to change something systemically too, so what's the conversation that's happening in the research field? What's the conversation that's happening in the philanthropic field? What's the conversation that's happening in the in the individual arts institutions that are about making this interconnected change? Like who makes the change first? It's the chicken or the egg or it's the whole chicken hen house? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh. The whole farm. Yeah, the whole farm.
3: Yeah the whole farm
2: but so let's just like can we can we like yeah let's do some imagining what 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 where where should like where where's cultural workers what is that let's define that please
3: oh yeah i no i don't want to shake the artist title because i kind of like that mm. um but I, I just use the term cultural worker in the sense of somebody who earns his, her, their living by working in, you know, a library, a museum, a theater, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but who has access to the things that, you know, make it possible to stay and work in their chosen field. Mm-hmm. So, wages, professional development, sick leave—you know, the, those kinds of things—and um, yeah, so yeah, I I don't want to lose the artist in the sense of creator, and I don't want to sort of suggest that cultural worker is, you know, people pressing bro- brooms across cement floors, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I do. I do think that the the protections that allow you to do good work and to stay good at it. I mean, you know what i'm I'm often struck mm-hmm. by is how few that because we lack those protections for people, mm-hmm. people move in and out of the field very fast. You don't get old heads um and where the wisdom in the field comes from if you get this constant churn Mm -hmm. i mean so you know you could say the wisdom comes from you know people like you and Lindsay who are in your positions for a long time um but yeah i i it would be great if people could grow old and wise and become really terrific mentors um, in the field. Uh, but at the moment, it's a, you know, it's a young person's game. You have to come and go.
0: Thank you for listening to Episode 44, Act One of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Boddy, Danny Palmer-Wolf, Oxygen in the Bloodstream. Join us next time for Act Two, this podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. John Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Twitter us at TA underscore artistry. The gram at artistry with CJB. And now on YouTube, check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life.
1: Let's start it up now.